0: Well, if you wouldn't mind turning once again in the Word of God to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 8. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you. And peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, and as much as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Let's pray for God's blessing. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for this time when we are able to come around the Word of God. Lord, we believe that this is the word of God and that it is profitable that the man of God may be perfect and complete and mature. We pray that you would use your word to mature us, to show us Christ, and to bless everyone for the sake of the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well. Last week, we began a study in the book of Philippians, and we said that we would be going verse by verse through this wonderful book. And last Lord's Day, we began with a brief introduction of the book, and we looked at the salutation, which is found in verses 1 and 2. We noted that in the book of Philippians, verses 1 through 11 is the introduction. The introduction is made up of three parts. Verses 1 and 2 is the salutation. Verses 3 through 8 is Paul's thanksgiving, and verses 9 through 11 is his prayer. And we also noted how that this is very interesting, because writers in New Testament times would typically open up their letters with a threefold salutation, sometimes adding a fourth. They would begin with the writer. We see that Paul does this. Paul is the writer. Then they would speak of the ones addressed. We see that Paul does this. He's addressing the saints at Philippi. Then there would be a greeting and sometimes a wish. But the Apostle Paul, being the Christ-consumed gospel um, thinking man that he was, he doesn't simply greet them. He says, grace be unto you. And then he doesn't simply make a wish for them. He speaks of his thankfulness for them, and he gives them his prayer requests for them. So he takes this typical formula, and he makes it very Christian in the way that he opens up this book. But today, I want us to begin looking at the second part of the introduction, which is Paul's thanksgiving, which would be verses 3 through 8. We won't be able to finish this all in this message this morning. We'll have to take it into next week as well because there's a lot in verses 3 through 8 but the key to this section verses 3 through 8 is really in verse 4 in verse 4 Paul says this always in every prayer of mine for you all making request with joy joy the key word that really opens up these verses is the word joy joy Now, I remember last week we mentioned briefly that the theme, you could say, of this book is joy in Christ. Joy in Christ. And not because simply of the prevalence of the word joy, although it is used, leave it as 16 times, joy or rejoice, but because of the preeminence of joy. Joy colors and shapes everything Paul says in this book. Or much of what he says at least. He rejoices in Christ, in the gospel, in prison. And we see all of this throughout the book of Philippians. And especially in this verse, he speaks of his experience of joy as he is praying. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests. So he's praying. And he says he does this with joy. I'm praying with joy joy and this really controls the rest of this section because he says i thank my god as i'm praying that gives us an understanding of one of the reasons why he had a joyful heart he says i'm praying seems that prayer has a connection with joy then he gives the grounds of his joy that we have fellowship in the gospel that we're i'm confident of the work of God in you. And then he speaks of the affection that he has for them, verses seven through eight. So we see many reasons for joy throughout this passage. But this brings us to a very critical moment in the study of the book of Philippians. What is joy? What is joy? Because if we're going to look at these verses, And we're going to use joy as a controlling word to understand what these verses mean. We have to understand something about what joy is. So what is joy? How would you describe joy? Well, I labored over this definition and consulted many different people. And most importantly, looked at many verses in the scriptures, specifically the New Testament. And I think if we take and do a word study of the word joy, and you were to take all of the verses in the New Testament and try to boil it down to the most concise statement that you can, or at least I can, this is what we find. Joy is an experience of delight in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit when a believer sees the glory of God And receives and obeys his word. And receives and obeys his word. I'm going to try to pull that apart so we can understand it step by step. First of all, joy is an experience of delight. Joy is not a mere decision. It's not a mere condition. It is an experience. It is something that can be felt. Um... Paul says in verse 7 For we have great joy, great joy and consolation in thy love. Because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. And everything in that text speaks of something that is experienced, something that is felt. It's not merely something that is known in the head, it is something that is experienced. But it is in the soul, in the soul. This is not something that takes place in merely the body. It is not um, simply physical. It can't be simply physical because it's a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 verse 22 says, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. And if it is a spiritual fruit, it can't be something that is taking place in the body. It must be something that is taking place in the soul. Now, we do understand that the body can manifest the experience of the soul. So I might have tears when I have joy. I might smile when I have joy. I might even, might even clap my hands in joy. But the manifestation of joy sometimes is very different. I might have joy, but I might not have tears. I might have joy, but I might not at that moment feel bodily or manifest bodily what I know to be true and experience in my soul. So if you think, do I have joy? I, don't, I haven't cried a lot when I've thought about the cross. I don't know if I really have joy. Well, joy is an experience in the soul of the faith of the soul of a man gazing upon Christ and receiving and obeying His word. But that experience in the soul often manifests itself physically. It is something that is known in the soul. Um, joy is a movement of the soul and then it is also produced by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5:22, which I noted, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. First Thessalonians chapter one and verse six: Ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Joy is an experience that only the believer can have. Because joy is not whipped up by a psychological evaluation or some kind of psychological means. Joy is something that is produced by the Holy Spirit of God. That's the teaching of Scripture. So joy is not something truthfully and fundamentally that someone can have outside of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But here's a wonderful thing, if you have the Holy Spirit, you can have joy. And every believer has the Holy Spirit. Romans eight makes that very clear. For every man that has, no man has, has Christ, and I have the Spirit of Christ. Amen. But it is also, as a believer, sees the glory of God. Now the glory of God, preeminently, gives us joy. The psalmist says in Psalm forty-three that God is my exceeding joy. Paul says in Philippians four verse four, rejoice. In the Lord. In the Lord. Okay? You're not rejoicing in your circumstances, You're not rejoicing in necessarily what's taking place, but in the Lord. In Him. Literally, God is your joy. Christ is your joy. The Spirit is your joy. His person. See, not merely, not merely what He gives you, but He is your joy. Him. God is your joy. And the psalmist says, my exceeding joy. And as the psalmist in Psalm 43 is, is low and he's dealing with some form of depression, he's sinking deeper and deeper, and then he says, but I will go into the altar of God and I will find God my exceeding joy. God is my joy. But also, it is as a believer receives and obeys His word. Now I should note that God is seen in the word. God is also seen in His works. We can know something of God's mercy by the gifts He gives us. Food, clothing, places we have to live. The brothers and sisters that we have the privilege of being with this morning. But it's also as the believer receives and obeys His word. And this is important. In the book of 1 John, John writes this. In chapter 1 verse 4. And these things write we unto you, that your joy... Your joy might be what? Full. You've got joy, but you don't have a full joy. There's something lacking in your joy. And see, John knew that there were certain things that needed to be understood and needed to be received for them to have full joy. And so John writes this book, particularly to deal with the issue of the assurance of salvation. There are things that need to be received from the Word of God that will give us joy, truths that need to be received, need to be believed. The truth in the book of First John is simply this, that Jesus Christ has done away with my sin. He has made me righteous in the sight of God and the reception of that truth will produce joy in my soul. But also it's, as a believer obeys the word. John makes it very clear in chapter 5 verse 21, little children keep yourselves from idols. Well, how does that fit into the theme of that your joy may be full? Because sin is a killjoy. Sin's a killjoy. People say, "Um, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to read the word. I don't want to obey God's word because it's it's not very exciting. Well, if you know God, you have been created to be a new Christ as a new creature in Christ, excuse me, and you have new affections. You're not going to be ever fully satisfied with the things of the world. And in fact, if you're a true believer, you will become miserable if you run after the things of the world. And John writes, keep yourselves from idols because if you run after idols, you're going to be greatly lacking in the area of joy, Christian joy. And so the believer needs to understand that obedience to the word produces spirit-wrought joy. And that makes the word... An exciting venture. Get into the word of God, receive the truth of the word, see Christ in the word, and obey the word, and we will grow in joy. So, once again, the definition of joy. Joy is an experience of delight in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit when a believer sees the glory of God and receives and obeys his word. So I want to keep that definition in mind as we look at these verses because the definition is the most important part of a word. You can say a great many words, but they don't mean anything beyond what you perceive them to mean, what your definition is. So this is what Paul means by joy. So as we come to the fourth verse, Paul says, I have great joy. I have joy as I am praying for the church. I find this very interesting. That the remembrance of the Philippians was a source of Paul's joy. As he prayed for the Philippians, he had joy. Sadly, the church is often not a source of joy for the believer. Maybe um, other words could be used when people think about the church. My brothers and my sisters, they might say this. Maybe the word frustrating could be used. When I think about the church, stressful, maybe it could be used. Maybe discouraging. Sadly, the church, and I'm talking about people, talking about individual people, children of God, the flock of God that are here this morning. What fills your heart when you think about them? How do you feel when you think about the people of God? The church, this church maybe. Joy? Joy? Frustration, stress, difficulty, hurt. Well, Paul says, when I pray for them, I have joy. When I remember them, I have joy. The church, the contemplation of the church produced joy in the Apostle Paul's heart. How is your joy today? How's your joy Well, perhaps your joy is low because there's something lacking in the area of your heart and my heart with regards to the church. And a right understanding of the church and a right attitude towards the church can produce great joy. But a wrong attitude and a wrong understanding is a killjoy and will steal our joy. We all want the joy that Paul had. No doubt. No doubt this morning we read this with joy and we go, I want this joy. I want to know something of this joy. I mean, I have to be honest with myself. I lack joy. I want more joy. I want to know this experience of joy. So we have to ask this question. What caused Paul to have the joy that he had when he considered the Philippians? What caused him to have this joy. And there's an answer to this question that we turn to this morning. And I want you to consider with me joy in the church, joy in the church. And these next 6 verses Paul gives five sources of joy for the believer in the context of his relationship with the church. Five sources of joy. They are one, thankfulness for the church, verse 3. Two, praying for the church, verse 4. Three, Working with the church, verse 5. 4. Confidence in God's work in the church, verse 6. And 5. Affection for the church, and that's verses 7 through 8. So we have thankfulness for the church, praying for the church, working with the church, confidence in God's work in the church, and affection for the church. These are all sources of joy as it concerns our relationship with the church. So let's begin with thankfulness for the church. In the third verse, Paul says this, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I thank my God. The word thank means to express gratitude. So he was acting in thanking God because he had gratitude in his heart. So gratitude was already present. That gratitude spilled over In thanking God. I thank God. And this shouldn't be passed over too quickly. This church had some issues. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2 tells us about Yodius and Syntyche. They weren't getting along with one another. If you read between the lines in Philippians chapter 2, you'll see that there may have very well been an issue of a lack of unity. We touched on that last week. A lack of unity in the church. Perhaps pride, strife, vainglory is mentioned. In Philippians chapter 3 verses 18 through 19, Paul talks about warning against false teachers. This wasn't a perfect church, but he was thankful. And by the way, this isn't a perfect church because no church is perfect. And by the way, you're not a perfect person, and I'm not a perfect person because nobody's perfect. And Paul rejoiced. He gave thanks to God for an imperfect church. But it gets even more amazing than that because throughout the New Testament, this is something Paul does all the time. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul says this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Well, maybe I can understand the Romans. He does this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. He does it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. Well, maybe we can understand him thanking God for the Ephesians and the Colossians, but wait a second. He does it in the book of 1 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I thank my God always on your behalf. You remember the Corinthian church, I trust. You remember the sin that was present in that church? We just read this morning about the division amongst people that some were of Cephas, some were of Paul, some were of Christ, etc. etc. Remember the, the sin that was prevalent there, things that we can't even speak about. And Paul says, I thank my God Always on your behalf. So, if Paul can thank God for the Corinthian church, I think we can thank God for whatever church we're part of. That's faithfully preaching the word. A true church. Paul had thankfulness in his heart. Now, why did he have thankfulness for them? With all their warts. I mean, think about all the, all the problems, all the issues. Maybe you know people here. This person's got an issue. Everybody's got an issue. I've got issues. I've got a lot of issues. People have issues. Maybe you know things about people's past. Maybe you wish you didn't know. And you think, oh my goodness, they give all these different things. But we can thank God for the church. And if we don't have a heart of thanks, it's going to kill our joy. So why did Paul have this heart of gratitude? I think the key is in these two little words, my God. I thank my God. My God. What does this mean? It means this. Paul saw the church as a gift from a sovereign and a gracious God. Think about that for a minute. If he thanks God for the church, it must mean that he views it as God has given him the church. I mean, if somebody gave me a gift and I thank somebody else for it, that wouldn't make much sense. He's thanking God because God gave him the church. God gave him the church he was a part of. God placed him in the church he was a part of. God did it. And that's why Spurgeon said, in a wonderful but searching quote, frequently the murmuring against man is only a covert way of murmuring against God. Because God gave us the church. Whatever church you're a part of, this church. He says, My God. My God. Think of that term, my God. What a wonderful term. My God. The eternal, infinite, glorious God of heaven. He's my God through Christ. Jesus Christ's shedding of his blood brought me into intimate communion with God. I could have no communion with God. I could never call God my God. I was alienated from God. I had no ability to call him my God, but now he's my God. I, he's my God. He owns me. He's, he possesses me. Hallelujah. And I possess him. My God. You know what that also means? That means that the God who gave His Son gave gave Paul and us the church. Which means that the same love that moved him to give His Son moved him to give us the church and to place us in the church that we're a part of. So for us to murmur about the church we're a part of is to murmur against God. Is to say, God, you don't love me and you're not sovereign, you're not wise in what you've done. I don't like where you put me. I don't like what you put me to be a part of. Well, God's in control, isn't He? Isn't it God who's put you where you are? Isn't it God who's put me where I am? Isn't it God who's given us the church? Isn't it the same God who gave His Son? Well, the God who gave His Son then not give you something that's for your good? It's for our good. And Paul knew it was for his good. He knew it was for his growth in grace and whatever difficulties had happened in the church, whatever problems there were, he knew it was a part of a plan of a sovereign, loving God. He was convinced of it. He knew it. That's why he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be Content. Content. Because he knew, God gave me my church. God put me in my church. Even the people, they give me a hard time. God put those people in my life. He sovereignly, wisely did it. That I might grow in grace, that I might worship Him more, that I might know Him more. And so he says, I thank my God. I thank my God. But certainly, he he just simply thanked his God because he thought of the good that came from the church. I mean, how many times has a sermon changed your life, changed your day, changed your week? How many times have you come to the house of God and you've been, you've been down, you've been cold, you've been dealing with something difficult and the word of God's been opened up and it's been preached and your soul has been fed, you've been comforted, you've been encouraged. How many times? How many times have you been at a point in your life where you thought that there is nowhere else to go and there was one word in a message that changed everything. How many times? I can think back on many times God has met me in the church. How many times has a brother or sister called you up, put their arm around you, just the right time, sent you a card, given you a gift, called you on the phone, told you they loved you, told you they were praying for you, at just the right time? How many times has that happened? Think about all the people that love you. How many people would drop anything for you? If they heard one word about something that was wrong with you, they'd they'd drop anything. I know that's true of the people of this church. Drop anything to help someone, to help someone else in this body. Do anything. That love you, that care about you, that pray for you, that would do anything for you. Think about the fact of of your free ability to worship God. We're in here and we're able to worship God together as a church. We have brothers and sisters of like precious faith. We hear the Word preached. We get to pray together and sing together, worship God together, and travel this road of life together until we reach heaven. This is... I mean, think of all the reasons to thank God. Think about people in the Middle East that don't have a church. They don't don't even have an open Bible. Let alone a a group of people that, that love them they can come and be a part of and hear the preaching of the Word. They don't have that. They don't have a building. They don't have anything like this. What a reason to thank God. And you know, it's a sad thing, but there are some Christians who are so critical, so critical, constantly critical of things in the church that they don't see the good. They don't see the blessings. They don't see the mercies. And even the things that we have to be critical about are blessings and mercies because they're given by a sovereign God. But there are some Christians we are all tempted this way get so bitter about things that have happened in the past in a church or with people that they can't say with Paul I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. All my remembrances of you. Every time I mention you in prayer every time I remember you you can't say I thank God. So the last thing on my mind is I thank God for that brother. The last thing on my mind is I thank God for that sister. I can't thank them. There's still bitterness in the heart. Perhaps there's unforgiveness there. Philippians 2 verse 3, Paul said, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. That hard attitude of humility was a great source of Paul's gratitude. And for us, for us to be critical... For us to think everything that's wrong is to kill our joy. It's going to kill our joy. Paul said, I am thankful when I think of the brethren. I am thankful. Holding on to bitterness, holding on to unforgiveness, having a critical spirit, it's going to kill your joy. But then we also see in this passage the second thing second source of joy. Not only thankfulness for the church, but praying for the church. Paul says in verse 4, Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. Now note he is saying that I have joy as I'm praying. So I think we can draw from that that prayer is a source of joy. It's a source of the apostle Paul's Joy, He says, always. This intimates that his prayers were frequent. He didn't just pray on Sunday. He didn't just pray for his meals. He had a walk with God where he prayed frequently and he prayed for whom? For all. He says, always in every prayer of mine, for you all. He prayed for every brother and sister. And again, there wasn't one brother, there wasn't one sister that he said, I can't pray for him. I can't pray for her. That's absolutely unbiblical. I pray for you all, every one of you. And the word prayer here is a very important word because the word prayer, the same Greek word translated prayer is the same Greek word translated request in the verse. Prayer here is the word for petition. It's a supplication. Paul is saying, when I pray for the Philippians. So I pray for you. I have requests. I petitions. I mean, this is a burden on my heart. I have things I, I'm longing, longing to see in you. I have burdens for you. And he notes these in verses 9 through 11. He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and judgment. I'm praying that you might approve things that are excellent. That you might be sincere without offense till the day of Christ. I'm praying for you. That you might be filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ and the glory and praise of God. These were Paul's prayers for his brothers and sisters in Philippi. They filled his heart and burdened him and overflowed in supplication. He says, I'm praying always, frequently, for you all with petitions that that I bring before God and I do it often. The idea here is that frequent supplication on the behalf of God's people produces what? joy. So if we are not often praying for our brothers and sisters, we're going to lack joy. Praying, supplicating for our brothers and our sisters is an obedience to the Word of God and the Spirit of God will produce joy in our souls. One great area of a lack of joy, as we mentioned in the last point, is disagreements with brethren or bitterness towards brethren perhaps hurts in the past. You know one way that is dealt with? By praying for them. You want to cultivate love in your soul for your brother and your sister? Pray for them. Let me ask you, do you speak more against that brother that has hurt you than you pray for him? Do you speak more about that brother or sister that has hurt you than you pray for him? Because if you do you're not fall in the word, pray for your brother, even the one that's hurt you, the one that the one that drives you up the wall. You think, oh my, I just can't believe they done that again. Pray for them. Get a burden for them. Get a burden. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Pray that they grow in the Lord. Pray they become mature in the Lord. Pray that they that, that like Paul says that their love might abound more and more. Are you burdened for your brothers and your sisters? Are we burdened for the church of God that they would grow in the Lord? We burdened that families would grow in the Lord, marriages would grow in the Lord, people would grow in the Lord. We burdened. Pray, pray for the church, produces joy. But then the last thing that we'll be able to look at this morning is working with the church. Thankfulness for the church, praying for the church. Both of those produce joy, but working with the church produces joy. Paul says in verse 5, for your fellowship. Now the word for means that he's explaining the grounds of his things. I'm thankful because or for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So in verse 5, we have a very big term, which we have to understand before we can move on. And it is the term fellowship. Fellowship is a huge word in the New Testament. It would take a long time to look at all of the particular usages of it. But I will give you a list. A commentator named Hendrickson, which is an excellent list summarizing the teaching of the New Testament on fellowship. He gives eight particulars about fellowship. First, it is a fellowship of grace. We've been brought into this fellowship by grace alone. Second, it is a fellowship of faith. We all share a common faith. We may have differences about different things. Might not see eye to eye on something here or something there. But we have a common faith in Christ. Third, it is a fellowship in prayer and thanksgiving. The church comes together and they fellowship by praying and giving thanks. Fourth, it is a fellowship in love. We have a bond of love for one another, for Christ and for souls. Fifth, it is a fellowship in helping one another. Sixth, it is a fellowship in promoting the work of the gospel. Seventh, it is a fellowship in separation. We separate from the world. Together, we separate from false teachers, together. Eighth, it is a fellowship in warfare. We are all together warring against the flesh and the devil and spiritual powers. It is a fellowship of warfare. And that kind of gives us a summary of the New Testament's teaching of fellowship. However, in this passage, a certain sense of the word fellowship is used. It can't be all of those. It's one of those. Now, which is being used? Well, although they are union with Christ, Fellowship with Christ, and through the union with Christ, union with one another, is certainly there. Paul says fellowship in the gospel. In the gospel. So what is being meant by fellowship in the gospel? It seems that what is meant by the word fellowship here is participation. Partnership. Participating together. Fellowship in the sense of working together. The word group of this word that is used in the book of Philippians is used six times. Here in verse 5, in verse 7, Paul says, Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, and as much as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. Partakers, same word. Same word group. Partakers, So you see that this word has the idea of participating, partaking with, partaker. Chapter 2, verse 1, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, you have the word fellowship. It seems there that the best understanding is to participate with the Holy Spirit in His gifts and in His graces. Chapter 3, verse 10, Paul speaks of the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. Now this fits with 1 Peter 4, chapter 4, verse 13. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Participating alongside, in and with Christ, in His sufferings. This word is also used in chapter 4, verses 14 through 15, talking about how the church gave the church at Philippi to the Apostle Paul in his need. And the word used to talk about giving or communicating is the word Participate, same word, or it could be said fellowship. So it seems that in this epistle, the word fellowship has to do with participating together. And it appears that this would be even more strongly inferred because of the word, usage of the word in, fellowship in the gospel. And this has the idea of in to or unto the gospel. Unto the the furtherance of the gospel, the promotion of the gospel, fellowship in the gospel with Paul for the furtherance of the gospel. That's what he's saying. And this is is said throughout the book of Philippians. You think of verse 7, he says, you're partakers in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. says, you're with me as I've defended and confirmed the gospel. In verse 12, he says, These things have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. This is his desire that the gospel would be furthered. And the Philippians have been with him all the way through in helping him to spread the gospel and aiding him in his gospel work. In Acts chapter 16, from the beginning, from the first day, Lydia immediately opened up her house for Paul and Silas. And in verse 40... When they came out of prison, they entered into her home. She, one of the Philippians, helped and participated in Paul and Silas spreading the gospel. And then again, during Paul's second missionary journey when he reached Thessalonica, we read in Philippians 4 verse 16 that they helped him there. On the same journey when he was in Corinth, brethren from Macedonia came and supplied his need there. All along from the very beginning until now, the Philippians had been right there with Paul when he was shamed for the gospel, when he was put in prison for the gospel, when he was in want and in need for the gospel. They were right there with Paul, providing his needs, praying for him, standing with him, participating with Paul in the spread of the gospel. You know what this tells us? The fact that they participated with Paul in the spread of the gospel was a ground of his joy. And it is a ground of great joy when a believer or even a preacher knows that he has brothers and sisters who work together with him or with them in the gospel's work. That produces joy. And this is Paul's heart. Paul continuously has this burden for the furtherance of the gospel. He wants the gospel to be spread. And throughout the book of Philippians, you can see this this theme. I don't have time to, to look at this, but his great desire is that the gospel would be spread. Even in prison, that the gospel would be spread. This needs to be the burden of a church. That the gospel would be spread, that the gospel would be advanced, that the gospel would be furthered. And when a church gets a burden for the furtherance of the gospel, and they come together in fellowship in the gospel, working together to get the gospel to the lost, to the world that needs Christ, it produces joy. Great joy that can't be had in any other way. Joy is produced in the church when they work together for the spread of the gospel. That's an amazing thing and it's very true. And you know that and I know that. Have you ever got together with a group of brothers and you've got together to spread the gospel and you put aside your differences, you put aside your issues, and you've said, listen, we've got a great goal. We have got to spread the gospel. People need Christ. We want to see God glorified. We want the tribe, the nation, the tongues to hear of the Lord Jesus. We want homes around a church to hear about Christ. And you get together and put aside your differences, because we've got something much bigger at stake. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It doesn't matter about our petty differences. It's the gospel, the gospel's furtherance, the gospel's advancement. It's about Jesus Christ. You know, if we want to have a great desire to spread the gospel, we need to have a great love for Christ. It's His gospel. When Paul speaks of the gospel, he says in verse 16, Preach Christ. The gospel is Christ's person, Christ's work. And the more we, more the gospel, the more the gospel grips us and amazes us and thrills us and stirs us, then we will have this great desire to spread that gospel. The more we love and adore Christ, the more we will have this great desire to spread the name of Christ. That is what we desperately need. All of us as believers, no matter where we are, we need a burden for the gospel. And see, a church that works together for the spread of the gospel is going to have joy. It's going to have joy. But in the inverse, just like, just like with prayer and just like with thankfulness, if there is any group, any church, any body, any individual that has no desire, no burden, and doesn't put feet to their burden, and doesn't work for the spread of the gospel, they're going to lack joy. They're going to lack joy. Well, and there this, this morning. Three sources of joy, thankfulness for the church, praying for the church, working with the church. I want to have more joy. I want to know the joy of the Lord. Let's pray that God would help us in our thankfulness and our praying and our working together for the spread of the gospel this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank Thee and we bless Thee for Thy word. We thank you, Lord, that we've been given the Holy Ghost, that we can have joy. God, we want joy. And we pray that you would help us to have thankful hearts as we think of your mercy and your sovereignty. Help us, Lord, to pray for the brethren and help us as we work for the gospel. God, I pray that you would impress this upon the hearts of everyone this morning and take your word no matter what part is needed and apply it to the hearts of everyone. If there's anyone that does not know Thee, Lord, please open their eyes to see Christ. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.